I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. In mid-December of 2000, 52-year-old Colleen Wood was planning to embark on her dream trip, sailing around the world with her partner and newfound love, John Paul Sr. When John Paul resurfaced without Colleen, her family was shocked to discover that Colleen's traveling companion was hiding some very big secrets. This is episode 25, The Colleen Wood Story. Hi, Amy. Hey, Megan. Want to let you know that today's episode came from a listener of ours who wrote in with this case suggestion because Colleen Wood was her grandmother. That's so interesting. I know. And so I'd like to say thank you, first of all, for being willing to share this story with us and for your willingness to also talk through the details. Had you heard of this case before? I had not heard of this case. So I did a a deep dive on it. And uh, so I'd like to dedicate this episode to Mandy and to Colleen Wood's family. I hope that we do it the justice it deserves, and I hope that maybe it helps. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you so much. Colleen lived in Akron, Ohio for most of her adult life. She had been married and divorced and had raised two sons, mostly as a single mother. She worked in a hospital. She had a good long-term job. And in the mid-90s to late 90s, she was also involved in a long-term relationship. However. In 1998, Colleen's long-term relationship ended, and unfortunately, the hospital where she had worked for so many years laid off a number of workers, including Colleen. At that point, Colleen's children were grown, and she really didn't feel the same ties to Ohio as once before, 
So she decided to follow her dreams and her heart, and she moved to Florida. She worked as an office manager in a Fort Lauderdale marina, and this was perfect for Colleen because she loved sailing and yachting. And that's when I say she followed her dream. It was all about sailing around the world. And by all accounts, everyone loved Colleen. Her boss, the customers, and everyone who came into contact with her said she was just a breath of fresh air. Colleen bought a condo in Boca Raton, and she was really making a nice life for herself there. And by all reports, she was happy. About a year later, in November 1999, Colleen met John Paul Sr., a former professional race car driver, about 60 years old at the time, who would woo Colleen and eventually offer her the opportunity that she's been waiting for, which is to sail around the world with him. He offered her her dream. Colleen quit her job as an office manager and packed up getting ready for the trip of her lifetime. How long had she been with him at this point? About a year. Okay. Colleen sold her place and got rid of all of her belongings, which really concerned her family and friends. But Colleen said she was planning a one-year trip and it was just too much and too long to keep all of these things around and pay for the storage. Her friends and family met John Paul. So there's John Paul Sr. and Jr. and I'll get to that in a little bit. So they met John Paul and they seemed to like him. And though people were worried about Colleen's decisions, they were also really happy for her because she was so excited about, you know, fulfilling this lifelong dream. However, John was also a heavy drinker and he would become verbally abusive. And this was a recurring problem in their relationship, one that neighbors could attest to and one that Colleen had discussed with her family and friends as well. Nevertheless, Colleen was happy and she was committed to sailing around the world with Paul. On December 3rd, 2000, Colleen spoke with her son, Michael, and she said that she would send Michael some gifts for the kids and some other memorabilia. Remember that Colleen is a grandmother at this point. Colleen then sent a letter to her son saying she would be back in touch with him after a January trip she planned to take with John Paul to Key West. But in the meantime, she spoke to her former boss and uh, she was a colleague and a friend, and this was on December 15th. And her boss invited her to the office Christmas party where Colleen used to work on December 19th. Colleen said, yes, she and John were in Key West then, but she would make it for the party. But she never showed up and she never sent those promised items to her son, Michael. And by mid-January, both sons, so she has two sons, both Todd and Michael were worried because they have no contact from their mother at this point. And it's been several weeks and they didn't have, which I thought was a little strange, John Paul's contact information. So they start doing some research and they find out that John Paul is not who he said he was. What they find out was pretty shocking. He had been a champion race car driver, which he had already revealed. And he had won several races, by the way, including, do you know the 24-hour Le Mans in France? Nope. Have you, let's see, so you've never heard of that race. Have you seen the movie Ford versus Ferrari? Nope. Well, you should, because it was a great movie, just so you know. This was, uh, Ford versus Ferrari was about, with Matt Damon and Christian Bale, and it was, you know, about which car would win this this race, which is Doesn't like, sound very interesting to me. Gr- great movie. <laughs> okay. That movie took place, the events of Ford versus Ferrari took place in 1966, and John Paul appeared in the Le Mans race in 1978, and he placed in this race and many others. There are different classes in Le Mans, and he got fifth overall and first in his class. And, you know, the class has to do with the engine and the car type. So overall, without going to all these details, he did very well. Mm-hmm. He was a well-known race car driver. He also, by the way, had a son later on, and they would become a father-son duo. Which one? He's senior then. He's senior, right. So John Paul Jr., who's also going to play a role in this story and in some of the things that, you know, the family would find out about him. So keep that in mind. 
What else do we know about John Paul? Well, we knew that he grew up in Holland, attended Harvard for his MBA, and worked on Wall Street. But he had also served a very long sentence, prison sentence, for drug smuggling, money laundering, and attempted murder. And I'm assuming Colleen's family had not heard of these. I wonder if Colleen knew. I don't think she knew. Um, So I can't say for sure, but I don't believe so. In fact, he had been in a federal prison and only been released just prior to meeting Colleen. Wow. I'm thinking also he comes out and he's a, a federal felon, and now he needs to think about how he's going to make money as well. Colleen's son, Michael, reported when he read this, feeling fear, panic, and now he's really worried. Now he's like, my mom is seriously in bad company, and, and I haven't heard from her. Yeah. And so I think they, they sense the danger at that point. And he called the police soon after making you know this revelation, but... The time that had elapsed had made an investigation difficult. There are, you know, a couple of factors here. First of all, it's been a while. Second of all, she left with him on a boat, which is very hard because they don't know where they are. There's no there's no scene to investigate at this point, mm-hmm. right? When someone's reported missing, you first start by going to their house. You look at their car. At this point, they have nothing to look at. Michael also found John Paul's daughter, who said that John Paul sometimes contacted her. He would call her. She also said that she did know that her father and Colleen had a big fight right before Christmas. Now, keep that in mind, because the last time anyone's heard from Colleen is on December 15th, Mm -hmm. right before before Christmas. Christmas. Michael eventually, he files, uh, Colleen's son files a missing persons report in Fort Lauderdale. I think it's indicative of what was happening because homicide detectives start looking at activities. In April 2001, though, so this is, you know, March, April, four months later, John Paul calls Colleen's son, Michael. So he's he hasn't heard anything. He's, he's been trying to get in touch. He's, he's desperate. Can I ask a quick question? Was he yeah. on parole at the time or he maxed out? Oh, no, he was. Wait he was till, on parole. He was on parole. So Wait. he probably wasn't supposed to leave. Amy's so oh, sorry. smart. Stealing the thunder for... Sorry. Continue. Amy, that will become very important okay. later on. So good question. So John Paul calls Colleen's son and... I mean, Michael is just thrilled to have any contact from him, right? So he asks, what's what's going on? Where's my mother? And John Paul says, well, I don't know. We got into a big fight and she left me. And Michael asks John Paul, by the way, where are you? And he said, well, I'm sailing in Europe. But police located John Paul's boat, Island Girl, in a facility not too far north of Key West. That doesn't sound like Europe. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so either. <laughs> Okay, so John Paul's told the story about, you know, a fight they had, and he's lying about his whereabouts. Does he not realize that cell phone data pings, no? I guess he's not worried. And maybe you're going to, when you hear more about John Paul and some of the mystery of him, you might understand why. The police went to interview John Paul at this point, who spoke with him. And he said that he had a large fight about money with Colleen, uh, money that she had loaned him. And basically, she left him afterwards. I think he told a story too. I'm not positive, but I think he told a story about her coming with two like kind of burly looking guys and and retrieving her belongings and kind of that was it. She was done with him. Though John Paul had skipped out on federal probation or federal mm-hmm. parole, they're one and the same in the federal system. His violation was never reported. I just want to point out this is hugely problematic. I mean, this happens at times where a violation might not be reported by a parole or probation officer. But usually this is in cases where the violations are not serious. We are talking about a very serious felon here, literally skipping out the state. This is this is one of the most serious types of offenses. So I'm not 
I'm very unclear as to how this wasn't reported. And I'm assuming there's foul play here if we're talking about it. So once again, something that could have been possibly been prevented if everyone just did their job. I think we could have. I think there definitely mm-hmm. was area for prevention here. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, yep. but I agree. They didn't have anything to hold him on at that time, right? They, they have no evidence of a crime. So they had to file his violation in order to be able to take him in, okay? That took a week or so to move through the courts, and they needed it in order to get a search warrant for that boat, which was Mm -hmm. right there, right at their fingertips. But by the time they got back to the marina, it was gone. The boat and John Paul had vanished again. Detectives are learning a lot more, though, about Colleen and and John Paul. So detectives learned that Colleen's ATM had been used around December 18th several times so with much more frequency, and that she had been taking out large or someone had been taking out large amounts of cash. It didn't look out like, you know, you or I stopping for $100 for everyday expenses. Mm-hmm. Okay, so who who's taking this money? Well, the surveillance tape showed that two different women were withdrawing these huge amounts. I know, you're like, that's interesting. I thought you were going to say John. He was paying those two women, oh, though. So the two smart. women, yeah, two women are taking this money out. They're doing it at the behest of John Paul. And basically, they don't know anything about How the police track him down? Sorry, I'm getting into the weeds on that. No, I love it. I mean, the surveillance tapes, maybe uh, maybe they had some identifying information. I, I don't remember yeah, specifically, okay. but I'm sure there was some identifying. But I, these women also, they really didn't, they didn't have a relationship with him mm-hmm. and they didn't really know him. They were just women like that he yeah. was basically paying like, here, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you go to an ATM. I would do that. <laughs> nice job, Amy. <laughs> All right. So investigators also learned that John Paul was placing ads for romantic sailing partners using Colleen's credit cards to buy these ads. And one of the ads, it looks like, was purchased before Colleen went missing. Uh, we were talking premeditation now. It doesn't look good. Uh, by the way, I'm not certain, but I think that John and Colleen had also met through one of these um, sailing ads, like meetup kind of things. Mm-hmm. They also, detectives came to believe that Colleen's, the, the Colleen Wood's sale of her house, cashing out her for 401k, which she did, and other items were really at John's behest. Um, when I watched an episode on, on this, there was an episode of uh, on Disappeared a while ago. I think it was called The Dark Voyage. They definitely indicated that Colleen had cashed in a lot of the stuff and given the money to John and he was handling the finances. Mm. Not good. Okay. At this point, the police are becoming, you know, they're, they're becoming well aware of what's going on. They're seeing, you know, all the, the red flags here. And also federal agencies had become involved. They were coordinating with Fort Lauderdale police to find John Paul and his boat, which was now off at seas again. This is also a problem, as you might realize, because of jurisdiction. When you're at sea, jurisdiction lies somewhere within, I forget what it is, there's certain mileage with the, the area that you're close to. But if you're not within that area, if you're out, then there's like maritime jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. It becomes very complicated. And that's clearly, And I'm sure John knew that. I'm sure he did. He knew that exactly, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Now, according to Colleen's family, John Paul, who started going by Hans at this point, fancy, had several run-ins with the law, but he was always released when law enforcement seemingly didn't have enough to hold him. And I think this is because he shows up in different countries at different ports. Mm -hmm. You can't get the paperwork quick enough. I think this guy is smart. Also, according to Colleen's family and from a show I watched, in 2004, John was spotted in Fiji and he had met a young woman who he was having on the boat. And I don't know if their plan was to sail, but it kind of looked like that. But her family recognized the name of the boat and I think recognized him. And they basically helped get her off of this boat and out of his company. 
But before she did, this brave woman took a computer off of John Paul's boat, and it turned out that computer was Colleen Wood's computer. Once again, you see the public really stepping up, doing the police work. That was really brave. That's very brave. And this explains a lot of how John was able to access all of her financials. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you this. If she's alive, why wouldn't she take her computer with her? Unfortunately, it doesn't look good. No, of, of course. Clearly, she would have taken her computer with her. Finally, Colleen's family reported that Hans was spotted in Madrid sometime between 2003 and 2006, where he docked his boat for approximately 10 days, and the law enforcement was supposed to bring him in for a parole violation. He got away again without being detained by Madrid authorities. Wow. In 2011, John sold his boat, which he had renamed Diamond Girl. John Paul still has an outstanding warrant in the United States for violating parole, but he has not returned or has not been detected yet any time in the United States in over 15 years. But Amy, there's a lot more to this story. How did John Paul violate his parole? Let me tell you about what happened. John Paul and his son, John Paul Jr., were caught by customs agents smuggling marijuana in 1979, and they were sentenced to probation and a fine. But they were arrested again. And what does John Paul Sr. do? On April 19, 1981, John Paul shoots the witness who was scheduled to testify against him several times. Shoots him several times. But the man survives. Tempted murder? Yes. And John fled to Switzerland, where he was arrested and extradited back to the United States. So he's a flight risk and they still keep, he has history of jumping bail and they're still. Okay. So he's extradited back to the United States. In 1987, he worked out a plea deal for a 25-year sentence, but he was released in 1999. Good behavior. This is before, you know, the truth, all the truth and sentencing laws were passed and yeah, early clearly. parole. I mean, and that's not very long. You know, what's interesting, too, is that he actually attempted to escape from prison as well. So he's fled bail. He's attempted to escape and he still gets early release half of his sentence. His son, John Paul Jr., only received a five year sentence, but he would never he never testified against his father. But this isn't even all of what you need to know, Amy. OK, there's still something more. John Paul was married. John Paul Sr. John Paul Sr., okay. thank you. John Paul, so incredibly, one of the most interesting parts of the story that seems to go under the radar is John Paul's history. He was married three times before meeting Colleen. He married his first wife, Young, and they had John Paul Jr., but they eventually divorced. And then he married Chalice Alford in 1980. But after one year of marriage in the summer of 1981, Chalice disappears and has never been heard from again. What a coincidence. And what does her grieving, not grieving, but concerned husband do? Well, he divorces her in absentia in 1982 <laughs> so that he can marry his third wife, Hope, who was another well-known race car driver's sister. But they would also later divorce. She didn't disappear. Though. She did not okay. disappear. I looked around. Mm -hmm. This woman has never been found. I saw some Facebook posts regarding her case. If anyone would like to look into it, there were a couple of posts about how she was in his company. She was with him and then she disappears. I would like to point out also that there was there tended to be a dismissal of women who went missing in like the 1970s and mm -hmm. 1980s. And I think this was before maybe women's lib, the second movement and, mm -hmm. and victims rights where 
there was a lot of like police officers went, ah, they probably wandered off. Ah, they're probably having fun, probably ran off with a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a penchant for not taking these cases seriously. Mm -hmm. And had this been taken more seriously, Mm -hmm. we might not have had a Colleen Wood. But I will say at least Colleen Wood's case gets attention. Mm -hmm. If you want to look into again, that is Shalice Alford. And this was John Paul's senior's first wife. This is, this is what I what I believe. Between December 15th and 18th, Colleen Wood was likely murdered, though there is no crime scene and no physical evidence because it took place at sea and because John Paul disposed of her body, unfortunately, at sea. Friends and family believe that there was an altercation in which John Paul killed Colleen and dumped her body into the ocean. But the real question here is whether this was a spontaneous heat of passion crime or was this planned from the start? Seems planned. I have to tell you, I've seen, I think I've seen enough evidence that I think this guy was planning on making, you know, money off of a woman. It happened to be Colleen. Mm -hmm. He spent a year, he wooed her, he convinces her, offers her the dream. So I think this was premeditated. Also of note here is that John Paul's son, uh, so his son, John Paul Jr., he has Huntington's disease. I don't know if you've ever heard of Huntington's. I've heard of it, but I'm not that familiar. Well, all right. Huntington's is a progressive disease that causes degeneration of the nerve cells in the brain. It's It causes involuntary muscle movements Ugh. like jerking or twitching, mm-hmm. um, trouble with swallowing, breathing, a range of cognitive disorders. I mean, the point is it's very Mm -hmm. degenerative and it's a very difficult disease for which there is no cure and for which I read most people do not live longer than their late 50s. Uh, I'm not an expert Mm -hmm. in the field, but the reason this is relevant is because I believe now John Paul Jr. might be about 55, 56 and John Paul Sr. is now 81 years old. And people are wondering if he's going to return to the United States perhaps to see his son because you know, his son doesn't have an, I don't know what the reality is, but you know, will he come back to see mm-hmm. his son? I'm personally keeping my fingers crossed this will happen. And uh, are the police on surveillance for that? I think so. Uh, I definitely think they're, they're on the lookout Who for Who does him. the son live with? Do you know, does he have a caretaker or does he have a family? He has a family, okay. married, okay. has kids. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if they've ever surveilled him and tried to, I'm sure they've mm-hmm. tried to keep tabs to see if he knew where his father was, but He's never revealed the location if he does know, and we don't know that he knows anything at all. But that would be the only way at this point, the only way they're really going to get I mean, they may be able to find him, but obviously he's very clever. I mean, he stays Mm -hmm. at sea. He changes boats. He changes identities. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's managed to elude authorities for a long time. So the only way I think that I see them catching him at this point is if he does reenter the United States. He may be deceased. Also, he might be deceased. That's true. I do believe there were some reports a couple of years ago. Uh, people have maybe seen him. Mm-hmm. It's just that I think if he's recognized, he leaves a port. So Colleen's case is cold. Right now it is. I mean, nobody has been held to justice for it. No. And even if they, even if John Paul reenters, they can arrest him on the parole violation. Yeah, and but then they, they don't have work. a body. No, they don't have. And you um, know how hard that is to prosecute a no body case. Yeah, I mean, you're really right, Amy. No body prosecutions are very difficult. It can be a terribly challenging endeavor. I mean, without someone's body, you can't tell the cause of death. You can't tell the extent of the injuries, uh, the timing of death, which we know can be kind of a window. But the body also gives us a lot of the forensic evidence in a crime. And none of this was possible in Colleen's case. If you don't have a body, according to former federal prosecutor Ted DiBiase, The evidence will tend to cluster around what he calls the three legs of a stool. Have you ever heard this? No. 
Okay. I, I wasn't sure. It like sounded familiar, but I'm like, nah. All right, so the three legs of a stool, one of them is going to be the obvious one, and that's going to be forensic evidence. So blood, hair, fingerprints. Do you have any idea what the other would be? Not yet, but I also want to say without a body, a lot of times that's where your forensics hair and everything else goes. In this case, there also was no crime scene. Correct. So no body, no crime scene, you're not getting forensics. So no, I'm sorry, I don't know number two. But you just pointed out the, the important part that the first stool is gone. Like what he mm-hmm. or the first leg of his stool that the, the three legs that's gone. You're not getting yep. that. So the second is a confession from friend or family members. You would not going to happen in this case, right? Not happening in this case. And the third one is a confession from suspect or defendant themselves. So in this case, these three legs, none of them were present. However, this is interesting, Amy, because I wanted to figure out like how successful are no body prosecution cases. And according to DiBiase, he wrote a book um, of all the cases that have been no body prosecution since like the 1800s, about 88% have resulted in convictions. I thought that number was pretty high. That's shocking to me. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought that number, like guessing before I read it, I kind of was going around a 50-50 shot, right? I I agree. Just really quickly, uh, one of the earliest recorded no-body murder convictions is also one of the few cases where the alleged victim might have still been alive, but it was pre-surveillance and other technology. In that case, Andrew Hudspeth was convicted and hung in 1892 for the murder of George Watkins in Arkansas after Watkins disappeared in 1887. Now, it turned out that Hudspeth had an affair with Watkins' wife, Rebecca, and she told the authorities about it. But from what I understand, there wasn't really overwhelming evidence in this case. And there was still, again, the suspicion that Watkins was alive. So in that case, I'm just going to talk about a few of these uh, nobody prosecution cases, because in that one, there wasn't overwhelming evidence. One of the more famous cases that I know about and that I teach about, however, there was very strong evidence in, but nobody was the case of Albert Fish and Grace Budd. Do you know Albert Fish? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Brace yourselves, everyone. I'm sorry. This one is awful because Fish was an older man, a serial killer, but a seemingly non-threatening guy. He was sort of older, grandfatherly looking. So I think that he was able to infiltrate victims easier. And he actually lured 10-year-old Grace Bud from her home, but with her parents' permission to take her to some type of party. And they just thought he is this sweet neighborhood guy who's taking her to a, a, a party. And so they said yes, but he lured the little girl to Westchester home where he strangled her. And then he ate her over the next several days. And then he sent a letter to this poor girl's parents letting them know how good she tasted. It was, I mean, it's one of the most horrific cases I know of. He was sentenced to death in 1935 and I believe was subjected to the electric chair. Uh, More recently, Amy, you've probably watched the Robert Durst documentary. I'm not sure if you saw that, but you know the case, the jinx. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, you know, authorities have never charged Durst with his wife Kathy's murder because they never had a body or, as you pointed out, a crime scene. So very hard to prosecute. Actually, Amy, you know a nobody case quite well. Do you remember one you covered on Women in Crime already? Of course, the Sarah Stern case. Right. So this is one that comes up a lot when you're looking up these nobody prosecutions as well. And they were able to get it in that case because they had such overwhelming evidence, but the, her body has never been found. Right. Um, again, they had forensic evidence, though, so they were able to get the conviction yep. because they, they had, had a crime scene. Okay. Well, in Colleen's case, the evidence that they traditionally would like without a body just isn't as strong as it could be. Though, I'm going to point out that I still think this is a highly prosecutable case if they could bring in the first wife's disappearance. I think that would have a serious impact. And then remember, they still have 
John Paul using the ATM cards, possessing her computer, lying to her son about his whereabouts. So I'm still confident that they could prosecute and possibly convict John Paul. If I'm not mistaken, though, he's well into his 80s at this point. I believe he is 81. All right. So this brings up a very interesting question. Is he too old to be a threat? So I want to dive into this a little because, Megan, we talk a lot in our cases how the majority of people age out of crime. We know that I think the number is like less than 14 percent of offenders older than 65 recidivate compared to 68 percent of people under 21. There is a huge age crime relationship that is very well established in criminology. And actually more than half of all offenders are arrested by the time they are 30. And Megan, do you know how long the typical criminal career is? I'm going to say 10 years, maybe 12 years. Yep. So it's actually five to 10 years. Most violent criminals do continue offending into their 30s, but most people age out of crime while they're in their 20s. So the question becomes, what is the purpose of punishment if you have someone who's well into their 80s? I want your opinion, and then I'm going to tell you of a really interesting case I heard recently. Okay. Are you going to tell people what the five, like, the purposes of punishment are or no? Yeah, so I teach about this a lot, and it's always such an interesting topic to me. So the question becomes, why do we punish people? So there are five purposes of punishment. So one purpose of punishment, of course, is going to simply be retribution. We punish people because they did something wrong. Another one is going to be incapacitation. We punish someone so we can keep society safe by removing them from society. Rehabilitation, which the hope is that people come out better than they were when they went in. There's restitution and restoration, which is surrounding closure for the victim. And then lastly, we have deterrence. If we're looking at someone who is about 80 years old, we know that their risk of offending is extremely low. I think one of the strongest explanations for why people age out of crime is that parts of the brain don't fully develop until age 25. So this biological explanation, I think, is a strong one. Right. Because if the brain is not mature, then as the brain matures, you're less likely to commit crime because you're more likely to understand, number one, the long-term impact it could have, how it could affect you. Instant gratification is not as attractive as, you know, delayed gratification and also just the part of the brain that experiences empathy. Right. I think you're going along with that. Yeah. People mature out of crime. Um, I think once people gain autonomy and independence, too, and they're not subjected to as many rules as when they're younger, uh, it's not fun anymore. There's no need to rebel. I think people get physically um, older and tired. I think crime becomes somewhat physical. And as people age, like I don't have the age. I'm sorry. I don't have the energy in, as I did in my 20s, now in my 40s. Uh, so I understand the physical components, too. Yeah. I think we saw that with the Golden State Killer, that he slowed down as he got older. And I don't remember if it was theorized or if he actually said it was because he could not. He used to restrain boyfriends while he sexually assaulted, right. you know, the girlfriends or the right. wives. And he just didn't he wasn't a young chap anymore and he couldn't do it. Right. I wonder if John um, Paul it brings it when I bring it back to John Paul. I wonder if he aged out of crime at all himself after Colleen. I mean, he was older. He was a 60-year-old man at the time he met Colleen, about 10 years on her. So he's, he's actually defying what we know about aging yeah. out of crime. He's a unique offender. And I wonder if he got older and ever aged out or stopped or if he continued. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he continued to offend against women or anyone else. I wonder if he continued to offend. I mean, it's possible. We do know that there are some people that don't ever age out, which is a nice transition. Have you heard of Albert Flick? 
No. Okay. So this is pretty interesting. It was a case in Maine. He was a 77-year-old man. Wow. He was sentenced in 2019 for stabbing a woman. 77, but that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is he had murdered his wife 40 years prior in the same exact way that he killed this woman. Get out. So we're looking at someone. He had killed his wife in 1979. He was sentenced to 30 years. Okay. He got out for good behavior after about 21 years. After he was out, he assaulted another woman, went back to prison, got out, assaulted a third woman. When he was sentenced, the judge only sentenced him to four years, noting that he would be 73 years old at the time of release, and that is simply too old to be a threat. Well, a few years later, he fatally stabbed this woman. So this is one of those really unique cases where, similar to John Paul, it's, you know, this guy never aged out of crime. And... If you, it's interesting, we always want the courts to rely on social science to make their decisions. But when it comes to aging out, it really needs to be an individual decision because this guy, Albert Flick, he was a repeat offender. There was no reason to believe that this gentleman would have aged out of crime. Amy, that's a really interesting point. And I think that that case is unique in the same way as you're saying John Paul is. He is a repeat offender. He did not desist. And I have to believe that he's the type who might not age out of crime, that that might be his lifelong enterprise. What about deterrence? I would say specific deterrence. It's not a specific deterrent because if you're 80 years old, you're going to die in prison anyway, probably, if they reincarcerate you, correct? Okay, so I'm going to agree with you because deterrence comes down to specific. So does it deter John Paul? I agree. Not applicable here. But I think punishing him serves the general deterrence, which means by punishing him, we're sending a message to society. And I think the message is, you can't simply get away with murder because you are of a certain age or certain, you know, creed. Like, I think the message is not to allow it to go unpunished. So I think it serves general deterrence. I agree. I think general deterrence is a big one because it's telling people, go ahead and escape all you want, but we will find you and we will prosecute you. That's why there's no statute of limitations on murder for Correct. that very reason. Right. Let's move on. Is it what about rehabilitation? That doesn't really apply in this case as well. I don't um, think rehabilitation you know, because of his age. Sorry, I don't think rehabilitation applies. And I think he's just, yeah, because of his age, but he's also too far, I would say, gone in terms of personality, right? Narcissist, mm -hmm. psychopathic personality, if I or yeah. extreme antisocial. So I think he's it's too late. So I think at the end of the day, if we were to prosecute someone who's well into their 80s, we're serving the purpose of retribution, of course, right? You did something and you deserve this. So I'm a retributivist at heart. And I can tell you that I believe in punishment that is just, but... True attributivists do not believe in excessive punishment just for pain. We believe in, as you know, proportionate. So I believe in re proportionate punishment. And so I do believe it serves retribution. I think most importantly, it serves the victim restitution piece. Because when somebody is murdered, we want answers. We want someone to be held responsible. Somebody died and their loved ones need closure. I agree. I, I think it serves restorative justice for the families. So I'm agreeing with you. I like when in cases like this, the prosecutors consult with the families and ask them. So maybe, you know, Colleen Wood's family, maybe they are, they don't care if he's prosecuted till the full extent and gets life in prison because he's old. Maybe it would satisfy them if he simply took a guilty plea and admitted that he murdered her. Or maybe it would satisfy them if he were to talk about what happened, even though you mm -hmm. couldn't rely on you know him being of truthful. Course. So I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be the max punishment, even though it's probably deserved here. I think it's good when the families are included and when they're 
dis- or when their you know opinions are taken into consideration, it really helps with the restoration process. So I guess what I'm saying is if, if he is apprehended, I really hope that Colleen's family is included in this process. I definitely agree. Now, you spoke to her granddaughter. Do they hold that hope that she is alive somewhere? No, they don't. They don't. They yeah. uh, for the for the most part, no. Mm-hmm. They they understand that that Colleen Wood is no longer alive because they believe obviously she would have contacted them. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. she she was a very very doting mother, and mm-hmm. you know she was very close with her family, mm-hmm. and they they know that she would have contacted them by now. So they don't hold out the hope that Colleen's alive, but they do hold out hope that they'll find out what happened. And mm-hmm. I've heard this from so many people. You know, they say there's no such thing as closure, but I've also heard victims' families say, you know, the the person, I think the right person was caught, they were punished, but they've still never admitted it. And I still don't know how it happened. So part of, the, you know, getting justice is coming to the truth. Mm-hmm. I just said this recently in another, you know, talk that we gave, but a lot of victims, they just want to know what happened so that they can put their mind at rest and move mm-hmm. on. And I sincerely hope that for Colleen's family that they will be able to find out mm-hmm. one day what really happened and get some measure of justice. Thank you again to Mandy for sharing such a personal story. Thank you so much, Mandy. We're very grateful that you chose to share this with us. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time. See you next time on Women in Crime. Thank you. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources from today's episode come from the LA Times, the New York Times, anetv.com, www.shallispaul.com, an episode of Disappeared, and of course, Colleen Wood's family. Diabolical. Vengeance. Betrayal. Bad hair. Leaning. Hi, everyone. This is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And we have a weekly podcast called A Date with Dateline, a recap of Dateline episodes. We talk about important issues like grainy surveillance footage, cell phone towers, Andrea Canning's white jeans, and Mankey's hankies. We delve into the details of any victim who's ever loved life or lit up a room. So find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and iTunes to make A Date with Dateline. And remember, don't watch alone. A Date with Dateline is a podcast hosted by two professional amateur true crime TV experts with no formal training but evidence lockers filled with snark and uninformed opinions. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.